Colossians 1. Verse 22 is where we're going to pick it up. And uh, just so you know, what I'm, what I'm going to want to, what I want to do is, once we finish with chapter one, then which we won't get done with today, but um, once we do get done with chapter one, is then the goal is to kind of go back, and I'm going to reread chapter one uh, with brief commentary. What I mean by that is kind of highlight some of the things we've talked about. And the reason to do it that way is to, to kind of help us to, um, I, guess, I guess, kind of to illustrate how we can think through Scripture. Like once we go through all these Greek words and these phrases and all those things, obviously we're not going to remember all those details. And the more we go over it, the more we're going to remember. But it should still have an impact on the way we read a passage, the way we read a chapter. And once, once we kind of go through a study like this, when we go back and reread chapter 1, you should never be able to read it the same again. It should be very different. Certain words will jump out at you. It may, it may be different words that jump out at you than to me, not because it means different. It's just that certain concepts will strike us depending on where we are in our life, where we are in our growth, um, you know, those, whatever we're thinking about, you know, those kinds of things. But the idea is is that we kind of have this expanding understanding and comprehension of, of what the Word says, what's, in a sense, kind of what's behind it. So it's never, whenever I talk about what's kind of behind a passage, it's not that it's ever secret. Right? It's, it's never that. Um, there's nothing, you know, we don't ever do anything that's kind of Gnostic. But the idea is, is that there is this, this beefier, more comprehensive understanding that affects us, so that when you read through things, um, you know, that's kind of what's percolating in your mind. And then as we grow as Christians, uh, you know, for example, if you did a detailed study on the book of Colossians, which is what we're attempting to do, so let's say several years from now, maybe even 10 years from now, you go through another detailed study of Colossians, well, what will happen is, is you'll be building on the greater depth you already have now, and so there'll be more that comes to mind as you read the scripture. It won't slow you down as you read, but there's more going on, you know, because of, of your understanding being enriched uh, by that kind of Bible study. And it's just really, it's very fruitful. I think it's very exciting, um, very stimulating um, as, we, as we read through the Bible. And then, and then that also then enables us to have a greater ability to translate the scripture into application for our life, wherever you are now and then in five years from now you're reading through the scripture and you're going through something, you know, the, the more you'll remember things and you'll understand how these things go together uh, and how it affects your life. And then also to help you as you, as you give advice to other people, as you're just talking to people about, about life, about their problems, uh, you'll be able to better apply the word of God um, to their life. Because when it comes to applying the word of God, remember that, that we don't want to use the Bible, for, we've mentioned this before, you don't want to use the Bible as a blunt instrument where you're banging people over the head. You don't want to do that. But you also don't want to just use band-aid cliches, you know, because they can be empty and even harmful. We really want to be able to apply the word in very practical ways uh, to whatever they're going through, whether it's something they should be thinking about that will affect them emotionally or maybe something for them to do or the way they can handle a situation. 
So that's why a broader and deeper understanding of Scripture is so important for us, um, because that is how God uses us in the lives of others. The same way that He's used other people uh, in our lives. Yeah. You talk about brow, but uh, paraphrasing brow means that by the Bible. Right. How are you going to be getting too carried away with doing well, as you learn more about the Bible, what, what should be happening is, is we grow in wisdom. So we grow in our understanding of people in, in several ways. Number one, we grow in our understanding of people from based on what the Scripture says, because the Bible does give us a very, I think, a very clear, comprehensive understanding of, of the human condition, of the human, pe- of human, of human, human beings. But number two, because of the way that we study Scripture, one of the benefits of that is we also become, I think, better listeners. So we, can, we hear people more clearly. And what I mean by that is really nothing more than sometimes you, you may be talking to an individual. Let's say, like, for example, early on in my marriage, my wife and I might be talking to an individual. That person is describing a situation. Um, and I'm listening. My wife is listening. And then if we're talking about it later, she might say something simple like, did you hear all the pain in their voice? And I'm like, no. You know, because I'm hearing all the facts and I'm thinking about all those things. So I wasn't thinking wrong, but I wasn't asking now, but now some of the facts I heard, she didn't hear. So now, but as we both continue to grow as believers, I know I listen better because I not only now listen to the chronology and the, all the logic, but I'm also better able to analyze what's going on based on the emotion or lack of emotion, body language, all those types of things. So I think the more familiar we become with the scripture, the better we do that with other people because we're understanding. Um, So that wisdom that we gain from the word of God, it really is very helpful for us. So that's how we prevent ourselves from being an individual who browbeats. Sometimes what happens is is someone else sees you doing and they say, you know what you're doing. (laughs) And they just tell you. You know, you're beating over there with the Bible. That's not helpful. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you can be. I, well, you can be dogmatic when you need to be, but sometimes it's not because it is true. Sometimes it's not necessarily how what we say; it's the way we say it, because we never want to compromise the truth of Scripture. That's what's important. Some people, maybe unwittingly, but for us to be understanding of a person's situation does not mean that we don't speak the truth. For some individuals, what, what, they, what they would do maybe naturally is when they're talking to an individual, they then begin to almost, let's say, side with that person and say things that would not be correct. An example would be this. So I'm talking to uh, a guy, and he's telling me about his wife, and he has all these troubles in his marriage. And, you know, he's feeling like he no longer loves his wife. They no longer get along. They're not close. He goes through all those things. So if I'm not thinking biblically about all of this, and I'm feeling bad for him because he really is going through a painful experience, I may say stuff like, not only I understand, I may then say, yeah, I don't blame you. Now, I'm not condoning anything, but that's not a good thing to say. Because how does he hear me? He may say, well, Brother Bob didn't have a problem. <laughs> that's not what I said. It doesn't matter. You know, we have to communicate clearly. So that was not my intent. Now, some people even go further. Some, you know, this, he may, if he's going on and on and on about all the difficulties, and he may say, I've explored every option. 
I don't see any other way than for us to get divorced. And I go, yeah, need to get a good lawyer. <laughs> okay, that may be some good practical advice in a sense, but that's not the way to go. Right? Because the goal is for them to, to truly exhaust everything to avoid um, the divorce. Maybe they really have. Sometimes they haven't. But we want to be careful that we're not, that we don't end up because we're empathizing with the individual, that we begin to compromise what the Word of God actually says. So, we, so again, but wisdom comes with that. Now, there will be times when we may be accused of browbeating an individual and you didn't. There's nothing you can do. It's, just, it's going to happen. People say, yeah, you know, Bob's hard-headed. He's harsh. He doesn't understand. He's, he's always had it easy. Well, I mean, I can't. People can say those things. I can't change whatever they're saying for whatever the reason. I, you know, that's just, we have to be willing to take that. You know, as believers, people are going to misunderstand us. They're going to misquote us. It's going to happen. All right. So we want to make sure that it's that I want to make sure that I wasn't harsh. I do want to make sure that I wasn't whatever. But if I can conclude that I really wasn't, then that's just, that's how it's going to be. Um, yeah. All right. So verse 22, again, speaking of Christ, he has now reconciled us to his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Uh, let me read to you from Romans chapter five, verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall be, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I know we have spoken a great deal before about defining reconciliation, um, and, but Paul continues to use that wording in this passage. So he is emphasizing that. Romans 5 makes it clear that on one hand we were enemies, now we're reconciled. We know that we're adopted to the family of God. Remember that according to the Bible, uh, in the book of John, uh, in chapter 3, uh, I think it's verse 11, but I'm not sure. Um, the, the idea, maybe it's verse 12, but remember that some people will say this in general, and they mean well, but they're wrong. And people will say, well, you know, we're all just children of God. Okay, that's not true. We are not all God's children. Now, we've all been created in the image of God. That's true. There's nothing that's going to change that. But we are the enemies of God. That's God's assessment uh, of us. We are at enmity with him. We are rebellious. We have to become his child. We have to be, we have to be reconciled. That's, we have to be adopted. And so that's what reconciliation is emphasizing. Um, so you want to make sure we keep that in mind. And so if somebody ever says that, you do want to correct them. You don't want to embarrass them. But you want to correct them and say, well, you know, that's not true. The Bible says that all of us are the enemies of God. However, remember, that's why Christ came, to reconcile us. And then you can use yourself as an example. So I know I am a child of God because I've been adopted by God. And that adoption came about because of what Christ did. And I've placed my faith in Christ. So, so you're able to explain, really, that was, that took, that, everything I just said was less than 15 seconds. But you're able to explain to them so they can at least clearly understand what they got wrong. Now, they may not accept it. They may not like it. That's whatever. But you've, you've given them the truth. But we want to make sure that, we, um, that we're able to be, that we're clear on that. Because you would be amazed, maybe not, but 
uh, it is amazing how many Christians get things wrong. We either say things the wrong way, and yes, sometimes it does matter how we say things. So that doesn't mean you should be afraid to speak. Right? Don't, don't, we don't want to get into this idea that, well, I may not say it right, so I would just better to say nothing. Don't do that. Um, there are a lot of ways to say it, but there are certain concepts that you don't want to get wrong. Concept number one, we're all children of God. That's incorrect. It's simple. You, you can, there's a lot of ways to explain that. But you want to make sure that you get the point across that, no, we're not all children of God. We are the, the enemy of God, and we have to become his child. Um, and I, think, I think it is John 3.12 um, or something like that, that uh, um, if we believe we become children of God. So verse 22, again, he says, he says in the beginning of verse 22, he says, he has now. So basically when he says he has now, that's basically introducing a contrast to, what, to the description he's given of us before. As we've mentioned before, reconciled, God has carried out this transaction. We are reconciled to God. God has reconciled us to him. We don't reconcile God to us. We are the ones who have rebelled against God. We have violated his law. Uh, God has blessed us with the greatest blessing uh, that he can give anyone because of this reconciliation. I have a sure hope that is beyond human description. Things now in my life, everything has changed. Uh, Edie, in his commentary, says, Man does not win his way back to the divine favor by either costly offering or profound penitence. God reunites him to himself, has not only provided for such an alliance, but actually forms and cements it. So what he says there, you can tell it was written a, a while ago because we don't use that kind of English uh, vocabulary and sentence structure. But the idea is, is that when, when this, this reconciliation is not that God has provided the means and we meet God halfway. Remember, that's not a good way to describe it. And some people have described it that way. They say, well, God's done all he can do. If you just meet him halfway, he will accept you. That's not what the Bible says. All right? If we, have a, if we have an urge to believe in Christ, that's because God's working in our heart. What we tell that individual, you need to believe in what Christ has said. But the work of reconciliation is all done by God. Remember, we are, we are at enmity with God. We're spiritually dead. We're not doing anything unless God is moving in us. And that's how we pray for people, right? We ask God to move their hearts. We ask God to take the blinders off. We ask God to reveal himself to them. We ask God to help them uh, to uh, recognize their sin or to feel conviction of sin. We're asking God to do all these things for that individual. Because that individual, being left alone, has no natural desire to believe in God. They have a natural desire to be relieved from guilt. They have a natural desire to want to go to heaven. But they don't have a natural desire to do anything God's way. They want to do it our way. And so we ask for God to intervene in their life. So again, reconciliation, and it's a fantastic word, which emphasizes the reestablishment of this relationship um, with God, again, is, is the work of God. And he's done all these things for us. We are the recipients um, of this. So when we become saved, when we, when we place our faith in Christ, something does happen within us. Again, it occurred when we saw, when we recognized that the death of Jesus was for us, that somehow he had done something to set aside our estrangement, our brokenness and hurt, that if we came to him in faith, he would deliver us. And so we came, we, we believed in Christ. Um, something happened then to our inner attitude. We were changed in the way we thought. Uh, we no longer see God as an enemy or as a judge, but as a loving father. Remember, I've mentioned this many times before. 
And this is it's an important thing to remember. Even though the Bible describes us as being God-haters and the enemies of God, there are many non-believers who don't view themselves that way because they don't feel animosity towards God. They're actually indifferent. So it's hard for them to recognize or to understand that being indifferent towards God and hating God, same thing. It doesn't feel the same, but both those things are what? Rejection, right? If a girl falls in love with a man and she thinks he's going to ask her to marry him and she's all excited, whether he says it nicely or cruelly, is he rejecting her? Yeah. Now, it's probably preferable if he did it nicely. <laughs> you know, we don't want him to stomp on her heart kind of a thing. But the idea is the rejection part is still there. All right? So when it comes to this individual, they, they, they may not feel that hatred, so they don't view themselves that way. So, again, when we explain the scripture to them, we're that this is how God recognizes that we are in rebellion. Um, you can, and there's all, ways to, all kinds of ways to illustrate that. You know, there's, if you've ever had kids, you know, sometimes there's kids that are, that are very, very pleasant all the time, uh, but pleasant kids can still disobey. They may find a pleasant way to do it, but they disobey. All right. Uh, so whether they're nasty and disobey or whether they're pleasant, they, dis they disobey. And that needs to be corrected. And we need to recognize that. Um, and so, again, we live in a, in a culture today that's very confused about a lot of things. That's why, in one sense, even though it's always been this way, we have a great dependence upon God to convict people of the need of Christ. It's always been like that. But it does seem, because the era we live in, that at least maybe we recognize that more than ever. Because of all the psychology that's floating around and all the different kinds of attitudes that people have, remember there's this idea, uh, and many people have this. Uh, in fact, I was in the, when I was in the gym yesterday, I was talking to this guy, and he, he, he came up to me and he said, what do you do when you talk to your 20-year-old son that he needs to believe in Christ? And he says, well, that's your view. I don't see God that way. I don't, I don't believe that. And so he says, what do you do? Like, I'm going to have a magic formula. Oh, just say this, and he'll drop to his knees and repent. Um, so I said, well, I, you know, I kind of explained to him the steps he could take. But then I told him, I said, remember, I says, most likely, your son sees and feels no need for Christ. He doesn't need to be saved. He has no sense of that. And I said, so if he has no sense of that, the message is meaningless. So what, one of the things you pray for is that he'll have a sense of that. Number two... If he's willing to read the Bible, because he said he was going to give him a Bible and ask him to read it. I said, ask him to read, let's say, the Gospel of John. It's a very common thing. Let him read for themselves what Jesus was saying. Jesus covers a lot of great topics in the Gospel of John. And we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, because that's what God works through is his word. Uh, and they would then come under conviction of the fact that they indeed are sinful and they are in need of salvation. That they're separated from God. Um, we can't convince them of that. You know, we, we give them the evidence of that. We explain the scripture uh, in line with that. But it's the spirit of God that convicts them. We can't convict them of that. Um, and so that's, so again, what appears to be impossible with man, which is, is possible with God. Like it's only possible with God. So that's, so that's what we need to remember. So, so a lot of people that we're dealing with, um, and sometimes we're the same way, in a sense. Uh, we just don't think we're that bad. Remember, I've told you before that, that there are many, many, many people, if you ask them if they've sinned, will look you right in the eye and say, I've never sinned. 
And they're not trying to be arrogant and pretend they're perfect. But in their mind, sin is murder. Sin is rape and armed robbery. I've not done that. They'll say, I made some mistakes, but I've never sinned. And so they clearly have a misunderstanding of what sin is. And so we want to explain. Say, well, actually, that's a word that God uses that describes all forms of rebellion, which includes that, but also includes, and we just state, state other kinds of things, um, and because we want them to understand what it says in Romans, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The wage of the sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And we want them to see that, that they are guilty of sin, that uh, the wage of the sin, the wage is a paycheck, and so God actually owes them death for their rebellion, whether they think they've done that or not. Um, and of course, again, remember that you scolding them or sounding harsh is not required to make them feel guilty. Let God take care of that. Um, you trying to be stern with them is not helpful. All they know is you're mad at them, or at least you sound mad. Or maybe they think that somehow, um, uh, whether you're trying to be manipulative, which you may not be, um, but it's just way, it's just a lot better for God to be the one to convict them of sin and not for them to feel guilty because you scolded them. Yes? Okay. When it comes to same-sex relationships and you point out to a particular person that I'm discussing this with that the word of the Bible I talks to about same-sex relationships are forbidden, and you say, yeah, I know that it's in there, but you think you can't do it. Who's, well, you can't change them. You pray for them, and you try to get them to read the Gospel of John. Um, remember, remember that. Uh, remember that if, that if people that are involved in a same-sex relationship, our goal is not to get them to change. That's God's business. Okay. If we get them to change, what have you accomplished? Nothing. All we've done is made a sinner a little more moral. That's about it. Their problem is not their homosexuality. Their problem is their sin against God. That's only part of it, maybe even a small part of it. So we, there's no need for us to emphasize that with them because it gets everyone off track because then that becomes the central thing. The central thing is their spiritual condition. You can't make anyone do anything. So you point out the truth. If they read the Bible, you get them a Bible to read, and then you continue to treat them with respect. Kindness, love, and pray for him. Have you ever heard someone say, tell me that they believe God made it that way? Well, they're incorrect, and if they're willing to talk about it, you can go into the Bible and show them that, that um, God did not make them that way. Uh, whenever we are in any kind of a state, whether it's homosexuality or anything else, if we are in sin, as the Bible describes sin, if God calls it sin, then that's what it is. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. Um, and therefore, what's Whatever they're, whatever they're involved in is God is not, you can't attribute that to God. God didn't do that. Sin did that. Well, you can say that, but it, remember, remember that the Bible tells us clearly that when you and I sin, it has nothing to do with the devil. We are, we are drawn away by our own lust in our hearts. That's why if you read, if we, when you read in Revelation, when the devil is bound for a thousand years, people still sin. 
Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, well, that's probably true. <laughs> we live in a world. We live in a world that hates God, so we're going to have that. Uh, okay, so uh, when we become a believer, we do recognize that the cross was not a symbol of failure uh, in the life of someone who is a religious fanatic. It was a moment when the great enemies of all men uh, or, and the great enemy that we all face was conquered. Death was overcome, as God says. All the powers uh, against mankind were set aside, and thus our whole life was changed. So salvation is a big moment, uh, and that's what we want them to understand, to understand the power of the cross. So we want to make sure that we don't interfere with that. Uh, so that's why, again, we share the word, we pray with them, we pray for them. We want to discuss these things with them. Um, you don't want to allow them to get you sidetracked if you are in those discussions and make whatever, whatever sin that they want to emphasize you don't want to make that the issue. That's where sometimes Christians mess up. We keep, we, we too often will make certain sins the emphasis. That, that isn't the emphasis. The emphasis is they don't know Christ. Um, and if we keep, for example, so I'm against homosexuality as much as the next believer. But, I'm, I, but if, when I meet a homosexual man, I don't make that, the, that's not the thing. All right? That's not the thing. Just like when I meet a drug addict, you know, I don't keep bringing up cocaine all the time. What I bring up is, this individual is lost and hopeless in life apart from God. And, they, and, when they, and who they need is Christ. And the answer is not found in the drugs. The, 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 uh, uh, what they need is not found, whether it's in a same-sex relationship or in a heterosexual relationship. The answer is not there. The answer is in Christ. Yes? Right, it's not about the symptoms. Yeah, remember Jesus ate with sinners. Okay, when the Bible says that, that's a particular kind of sinner in the Jewish context. So he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. In the Jewish culture, those were considered people on the bottom rung. So in Jewish culture, and it's not the only one, when you have dinner with them, uh, you are participating and willing to have a close relationship with them. So Jesus was willing to befriend them and to love them and to care for them without ever condoning their sin. He never, he, uh, he did not condemn them. Remember, the Bible says we're already condemned. Uh, he showed them the way. He never, he never went soft on sin, but he didn't just pound on the one thing um, like we can sometimes do. We want to make sure that uh, we are always pointing them to cross, to the cross of Christ and not to any particular sin in their life. Um, uh, and sometimes we, we can kind of go astray. And sometimes, uh, sometimes we can, it's even worse with our own children because we know them so well. You know, we kind of bypass a lot of things and just say, if you just get that fixed in your life, everything will be fine. And that's actually not true. Um, they need Christ. And, they, and remember that since we've been talking about homosexuals, remember that a homosexual person needs to be delivered from all of their sin, not just homosexuality. So we don't want to make that just a thing. It's all of their sin. 
Um, and, and we may not know what's leading into all those things. I don't know all the rejection they've gone through in life. I don't know all those things. You know, I don't know how much hurt they've gone through. I don't know that um, unless they begin to tell me. Uh, but, if they, but if they do, again, my job is not to analyze why that person has become gay. I may figure that out along the way, but that's not the point. The point is, is that I want them to know that, you know, we sing the song just as I am. That, that got you, it's not about you giving anything up to, to become a believer. Um, this is you, the only thing you're, you're giving up. You, you just release your, yourself from what you're trying to do and you just accept God's gift and then God will change the individual. And that will be seen. Um, sometimes we're afraid, some people, we're afraid that if we don't emphasize certain things, that somehow we're communicating that it's okay. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. Um, even if that person thinks that, when it comes up, you can bring it up. So, and you know, now they're a believer. Um, remember that if a person becomes a believer, God convicts them of sin. And I don't have to, you know, so sometimes people say, well, I know this, you know, so-and-so led so-and-so to Christ and they, they never felt guilt for their life. Well, if that goes on for a while, I don't know if they really became a believer. Because God, the Holy Spirit, cannot be, he cannot be thwarted in his ministry in the life of a person. And they may not know Christ. And so that's, you know, that's why sometimes, you know, we'll, we, we may recognize, I believe when a person tells me they become a Christian, but if the fruit begins to reveal, or the lack of fruit, that they're not a believer, then I begin to pray for them, pray that it becomes clear, clear to them. It's more important it becomes clear to them than to me, but that it becomes clear and that it will come to the surface so that we can deal with whether or not the individual has truly become, has come to Christ or not. Um, but we don't, but the goal again is not for, for us to change that individual within a certain number of hours or days. Um, it doesn't mean we allow sin to linger either. There's wisdom in all of that. But we just want to make sure that we're not banging on an individual just because of some particular sin in their life. Yes? Pastor Bob, uh, if we uh, are trying to uh, share mm -hmm. with uh, an unbeliever, mm -hmm. if we do it in the wrong way or the wrong context and do more harm than good, can't we cause that individual to go further and further and further away from God? And yes and no. Remember that our sinful approach is not stronger than God's sovereignty. Thank goodness. Normally, the only way that, that we're going to, let's say, have that kind of an effect on a person is if our attitude is wrong. We can say it the wrong way. Many Christians have, have explained the gospel and they've gotten certain points wrong. They didn't mean to, but it just came out wrong. Um, we say things what we say things backwards. All those kinds of things can happen. I'm not. I wouldn't worry about all that. We always want to make sure we get it right. But our attitude is what's really important with that. And um, if we have an attitude of condemnation, it doesn't matter how well you present the gospel. Uh, you are now inhibiting uh, and getting in the way of the message. Uh, at the same time, if I present the gospel, but my attitude, or maybe the way I say it, makes it sound like God accepts their sin, that's, that's damaging as well. God does accept the individual. God's not accepting their sin. Because I've had people ask me this before. Well, I've, I've gone through the gospel, explained everything to them, and it appears, they're under conviction, but I don't know, but it appears that way. 
And then they'll say this. Can I remain a homosexual when I become a Christian? Well, the answer to that is no. And, nor and normally, I will, say, I will either just say no, or I would say, well, what I know is this. When we become a Christian, we will be able to retain whatever God says you can retain, and you give up whatever God says you have to give up. Now, if they then say, well, I want to hold on to my homosexuality, then I would say, well, then you want to hold on to your sin more than you want God's salvation. And God, it's, remember, salvation is God's terms. So we can still say the truth. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to say, oh, well, don't ask that now. Don't do that. All right? We do want to make sure we're clear that you, know, you can't play these games with God, whether it's homosexuality or anything else. There's sometimes people, some people will do this, some, and that's why we always want to be careful that we always keep it to the gospel. So people go through times of difficulty, and those times of difficulty are used by God to awaken that individual to the need for Christ, and that's a good thing. But where, where it can be bad is someone's going through a really bad marriage, and they somehow, either on their own or maybe through others, get the idea that if I become a believer, God will fix my marriage. And so then, maybe you don't pick up on that, and you take them to the scriptures, and they, they, they say they believe in Christ, and they want God to forgive them, and they go through all the things that we would normally say that would make that individual a believer. And then several weeks goes by, maybe a few months, and they go, you know, I don't know about this whole Jesus Christ thing. You know, I came to him, and he did nothing for my marriage. Okay, well, now we have to have a discussion as to your expectations, what God has promised, where'd you get this idea that God's gonna fix your marriage if you become a believer? We can't, you don't bargain with God like that. Um, and so we wanna make sure that there's a clear understanding. So I had to do that a lot in the jail. Sometimes the volunteers would come in. They did, I don't think they always, maybe some did it on purpose, but I think some, they didn't mean to communicate this, but they would still say it. Uh, when you're talking to a man in jail, and you tell him, if you come to Christ, God will fix every problem in your life. You can't say it that way, because you know what they're thinking. They're thinking this, my problem is I'm in jail. I come to Christ, I get out of jail. See, that they have it wrong. Their problem is not that they're in jail. Their problem is their sin and their rebellion before God. And so we want to make sure that it's clear. So, so we want to make sure we communicate that to them. A lot of times, individuals uh, in, in jail learn that through time. Uh, but again, we just want to make sure that we're not communicating the wrong message. And again, Americans are particularly horrible at doing that. You know, if you, because, and, and there's, there's truth in what we say, right? If you come to Christ, he will take care of your problems. Well, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But again, I don't know what you think that means. So because we have a tendency to take those in the wrong way, we may want to, you know, you might want to explain, especially if you know what's going on, like you have a friend who has a troubled <coughs> marriage. You want to make sure you, that you bring that up. Say, now you need to understand that, you know, this thing about you and God, you seeking forgiveness, I don't want you to think that this somehow means that God's now going to bless your marriage and he's going to fix it. God can, but there's no guarantee that, that God's going to do any of this. He wants to save you. He wants to save your wife if she's not saved. That's what's important. And so we're not denying that God heals marriages, because he does. But what I am making sure that that individual doesn't think that this is an automatic freebie from God. 
that I get saved and I get a new marriage. Now, has God done that? Absolutely. God's done that a lot. So we're not denying that. But we just want to make sure there's not this idea that um, if I say certain things and pray certain prayers, then my life goes the way I want it to go. Um, so that's what we have to be careful of. We don't want to misrepresent the gospel. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Great uncle that. Okay. She's got Agent Orange, she's an alcoholic, and it gets into consumer community. Okay. And Dr. Cole, neither of them want to quit drinking or smoking because either one of the three is going to get you. That's true. Now, my dad's tried to minister to his uncle. Mm-hmm. He acts as though his uncle acts as though he don't even care. And they may not. Yes and no. There is there is no psychological or mental condition that renders an individual not responsible for their actions or beliefs. Those things those things can be uh, influential but they don't absolve anyone of responsibility. Okay. So remember, PTSD is just a description. Okay? It's just you're describing individuals having difficulties dealing with whatever the tragedies are in their life, war, whatever the catastrophe happened to be. Okay. That, and and, so, and there's, there's truth to that. So we're not denying that's going on. That still doesn't make them do anything. Okay, we have, because there's other people who have PTSD, and they don't act like that. We're, we're, pardon me? Well, it gets a little more complicated because too often what happens is if a guy is a war veteran and he's diagnosed with PTSD, they immediately put them on anti-anxiety medicines, and that becomes a problem. And that interferes with the way they think. But so we want to pray and ask God to give us wisdom so we can talk to them, um, encourage them, help them through whatever the issues may be, and help them to see that the only way to overcome that, and you have to be careful how we say overcome, because it doesn't mean that it's going to magically go away. It may never go away. But they will be able to better deal with it as a believer, because our perspective of everything changes. And we literally have the help of God himself every day, because the Spirit of God indwells us. So whatever our psychological issues may be, God can and does help us deal with those things. He sometimes will take them away completely, but even if he doesn't, we will have the ability through the strength of the Spirit of God, through his word and through his people, to better handle the stress that comes in our life. So see, it comes back to Christ and the relationship we have with Christ. And the reason why all that, there's several reasons why all that's important, not only for them, but for us, because the world wants us to think that the only ones who can help individuals who have any of these issues are experts. And how many of you are experts? None of it. According to the world, none of us are experts, and I'm not an expert. That immediately eliminates God. It's just another ploy by the evil one. What we do know is what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that uh, man's number one problem is he's separated from God, period. That's what we want to address. 
And then God has made it clear that everything we need for life and godliness is in the knowledge of His Son, Christ. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. And we proceed from there. And so there's no way to get around that. Now, a question on the battlefield. You just said that uh, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. How does that apply to Christians in the battlefield? It, it's just it's a, it's a general truth that's just true. It's not a curse, and it's not a curse on someone. If you go to war, yeah, there's a good chance you're going to get shot and you're going to die. There's no problem with that. Um, now, if someone makes that their way of life, it applies to them in that way as well. And so that would be, you know, a problem. But yeah, I mean, anyway, okay. Let me read you a quote from D. A. Carson. You ever get a chance to hear D. A. Carson or read anything by him? It's excellent. Uh, he's a very thoughtful, uh, uh, a very deep thinker of the Word of God. He is a Canadian, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> it says this. He says, we as, human being, we as humans have difficulty resolving God's attributes of perfect anger and perfect love. Our problem in part is that in human experience, wrath and love normally abide in mutually exclusive compartments. Love drives wrath out, or wrath drives love out. We come closest to bringing them together, perhaps, in our responses to a wayward act by one of our children. But normally, we do not think that a wrathful person is loving. But this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not an implacable blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against His holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated uh, by the loveliness of the loved. Thus, there is nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed toward the same individual or people at once. God in his perfections must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. God in his perfections must be loving toward his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. So all those things that we've been reading, that I've read to you, all those things are descriptions of reconciliation and how God brings about reconciliation. So that's why when you're, if, if you do, if you have an opportunity to share Christ with others, or if you're in a Bible study, whether, whether it's with unbelievers or new believers, or you're speaking to your children, it is important that we, uh, that we as believers are able to define certain words and help them understand it. You, may, you don't have to have all those paragraphs that I read memorized to be able to help someone understand reconciliation. But you have to understand the basic definitions of those words because most individuals don't know what they mean. Um, and so we want to make sure we're, you know, so that's what, that's what happens when it comes to explaining the Bible. Um, and sometimes what we can do is we can jump to another verse way too quickly. And because they don't understand what they've just read. Uh, I remember the very first time I went with my dad, we went to go visiting, um, and so he was he was taking the mom through the gospel, and I was talking to her daughter, and so I was taking her through the gospel. And so then, when we both got done, uh, he, had led his, he had led the mom to the Lord, and I thought I had led the daughter to the Lord. And so my dad, because he's wise, <laughs> began to talk to the, to the daughter. She was, I think, 13 or 14. Began to ask her some questions. And he said, well, let's, let's do this. And so he took her back to some of the verses that I had shared with her. 
And so what, what my dad always taught me to do is if the person is willing, have them read the Bible verse before you explain it. And he, and he told me the reason why you do that is that will give you clues as to where their understanding is. They have a very hard time understanding, like if they can't hardly read, then you know you need to really slow down and explain things to them uh, so, they, so they can get it. And so when she read Romans, uh, from Romans 3, for it says, the, uh, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. Well, when she read it, she read for the wagons of sin. Well, I didn't pick up on that. And so as he then began to explain the Bible verses to her, it became pretty clear. She had no clue what I was talking about. She, she was going along. She was very kind, very nice. And when I asked her questions, she goes, yes, I believe that. You know, whatever, whatever I said, she was in agreement. And so she did become a Christian that night, thank goodness. <laughs> but it was later <laughs> because my dad was able to explain the verses to her and explain the words that she didn't get. Like, so he corrected her. He said, okay, that word's not wagon, it's wages. And then he did what he always did, which he taught me to do. What's a wage? Well, the idea is it's a paycheck, and you kind of work your way through that. So, that's, so all, these, all these things that Paul is explaining here in this chapter... And the reason why we're going so slow through them is to make sure we've got a pretty good handle on the words. So then, as I said, when we go back and we read it, then you'll be able to see to a greater degree the depth of what Paul is saying and what he's getting at, because you will have a greater understanding um, of these things. So uh, going on, he, he talks about that we're reconciled in the body of flesh. So the distinction that's being made here is this, is the reconciliation, our being reconciled to God, it is affected in the body of Christ. So the body is his genuine physical frame. It is the body of his flesh. He actually died. Uh, and by his death, our peace was secured. The reason why that's important, I've mentioned to you before, uh, back then, uh, you had Gnostics who denied the body of Jesus, that he, that he didn't have a real physical body. There are people today who talk about our being reconciled in a spiritual sense. And so what is emphasized is what God actually did. And this was done in the flesh for us. Uh, there are pastors today, even in, in Savannah, of churches who, it's not that they will say from the pulpit that Jesus didn't have a body. They, they don't say it that way. They just ignore it. And what they, and what they will emphasize is that we can be reconciled to God, and, and they, I'm not sure of the exact way they say it, but the idea is that, that we can be reconciled spiritually. Now, the reason why they say it that way is because in their theology, they're pretty liberal. And so it's almost as if what they're saying is that whatever's going on in the body is not all that important, or it's not really covered by the Bible. That gives them room. So if that individual, let's say he's a homosexual, you can be saved spiritually. And he says, well, what about, you know, I have a boyfriend. And what the preacher would then tell him is, well, that doesn't matter. You've been reconciled to God spiritually. You're now close to God. And they, you can ignore the whole thing. Just so you know, they do that. And the individual who's sitting there, that's what they want to hear. So, you know, it's a win-win in a psychological sense for all of them. So again, it's not that we have to emphasize certain things, but what Paul is doing here is making sure they understand that what goes on physically is of great importance to God. It matters. That's why God gives us commands. 
about what we are to do spiritually, what we are to do mentally, what we are to do intellectually, and what we are to do physically. Right? He tells us what we are to do. You know, when it comes to the whole sex thing, God wants you to have that with your spouse. That's it. That's what he says. It matters to God what we do on our body and what we do with our body. And so we want to make sure that we, that we recognize that. That, I guess you could, if we want to use modern terms, it's the holistic approach to Christianity. <laughs> right? Body, mind, and spirit. Covers it all. Uh, and that's what he's doing here. So he's letting us know that this, this real historical event happened physically with the body of Christ and our reconciliation was secured by his actual death. He lived, he died, he was raised again. Um, and that's why, again, that's important. You may talk to individuals for the rest of your life and that would never become an issue, but it may be. Uh, or it may be something that they will learn from you without you even emphasizing it in the sense of being aware of it, but it protects them later from hearing some of that mess that's out there and being persuaded uh, to go into a, a different direction. So, again, the way that Paul is writing these things out, there's a reason for that. There's, there's a reason for the words that he uses and the phrases that he uses. So, and I'm emphasizing that just so we recognize, again, for ourselves, that we can't always and we shouldn't just do what, what we would call just a casual reading of the Scripture. We want to pay attention to what's being said. There is devotional reading. In, a, in devotional reading of Scripture, you read what it says. You're not necessarily looking to pick apart what's, you know, every, every single word or phrase. You're reading it, get the kind of general gist of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are other times when we are called on, as Christians, all of us are to do this, where we read carefully. And if you, if you read through the interactions that Jesus has, especially with the Pharisees when they were teaching Scripture wrong, he gets right down to semantics. He gets down to words. And he'll say, like, remember, he, he said things like, you have heard it said, but I say. And he says certain things differently. When, when uh, there were times when, when uh, the Pharisees were watching Jesus and, and Jesus took a man and told him, your sins are forgiven you. He said those words that way on purpose. Because what, was the, what did they say? Whoa, who can forgive sin but God? So he uttered what he knew they would take as a blasphemous uh, statement, which it would have been if it was uttered by just a man. But he said that to force them to deal with who he was. And so that's why words and those kind of things are important. So that's why we have to make sure we pay attention to them. Uh, and so again, as we read scripture, there's different ways to read the scripture and you want to incorporate all of them. So the rest of verse 22, he says that all of this, we've been reconciled in the body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the rest of verse 22 is this. There is this goal that God has in mind when he saves you. There, there is, uh, there's things he wants to have happen. This is what it is. There, there's this idea that still at times, well, may still floats around in Christianity, that when you get saved, that that's the most important thing, it is important. And that's somehow it. And this idea that we sometimes, that we actually talk about, pursuing righteousness, uh, seeking to live a holy life, that that is either unimportant or maybe not important or maybe even optional. They won't say it that way. But we need to recognize that, no, there is this expectation of God that we are going to be different. Now, it's not a legalistic thing. Because that's sometimes what's going on. Oh, you're just being legalistic. No, I'm not being legalistic. 
Again, think of all the kinds of relationships that we have with people and the normal expectations we have. The easiest one to think about is marriage. When, when your, if your daughter marries a man, do you expect that man to no longer pursue other women? Well, of course you do. That's, that's, that, that is demanded because of that relationship. I don't care who he's friends with. That all changes because he's giving a vow of commitment, that's what marriage is, to that individual to be faithful to just them, physically, emotionally, everything else. That's what that is. And so when a person becomes a Christian, it's not just, oh, well, you know, now I know when I die, I go to heaven and you just live your life. No, we've entered into a relationship with God. We are now his child. We now belong to him. We're part of his family. And, and, we are, and he's, he expects us to be like him, which is righteous. He expects us to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. Uh, so this, it's not a legalistic thing. Um, it's not something that we've not added that to salvation. It's all a part of it. Um, and Because there are some who try, and, and maybe they actually believe this. Some, some may not, but they, kind of, they try to make these distinctions that the pursuit of righteousness and holiness is like an add-on. And it's not. It's a natural part of what it means to be a believer. You know, it's, it's in a sense, you say it's a package deal. All right? God doesn't just save your soul and say you can do whatever you want with your body. Okay? He doesn't do that. Um, so we want to make sure that we, that we recognize that. Because, again, that's another aspect of some of the false teaching that's entered into Christianity. Um, it's been around for a long time. takes different forms, and it will continue to do that. So the idea here is this is a, this is a term of purpose. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, some get into the idea about what's being added uh, into, the, into, your, uh, into the verses by certain Greek words, or if there's no Greek words, sometimes in your Bibles, sometimes the different uh, public publishers do this differently, but sometimes in a verse, all the words would be in, in a regular font and a regular form, and sometimes certain words would be in italics. So normally, if the words are in italics, that means that word's not in the Greek. Okay? That word was added normally for clarity. So that means that one of those words, remember I've talked to you before about the tense of a verb, and it means certain things, or sometimes they add those words because it's what's implied by the tense to make sure we understand what's being said. And, and, but again, the reason why they put it in italics is so you know that's not in the Greek. You can look it up if you want to make sure that they're correct in that. So again, as I mentioned before, Christianity is we're very honest. We want to be out front, up front about everything when it comes to these things. And so that's what's important about, about the, this passage and what, caused, what Paul is getting at. So the idea is this, is that when he says in order to present you holy, the word present literally means to place beside. It's the idea of, of exhibiting something. Um, it's the idea of yielding to, to being at the disposal of another. Um, this verb, when, when you translate the Old Testament into Greek, is used as a technical term for the priest placing an offering on the altar with the idea of surrendering it up or yielding it up to God. So in this passage, the word present is in the aorist tense. And what that signifies is a complete action at some time, whether it's past, present, or future. It's primarily future. So the idea that's being presented here is that we've been saved by God, 
uh, and Christ wants to present us at one point in the future as being blameless and above reproach. That's the idea that's, that's being done here. That's the work of God in us. Um, one of the, uh, one of the, the uh, commentators that I was reading said this. He said, the reason why this is in the aorist tense is that it is signifies that in each and every situation of our life, we will be found alongside Christ, set apart for his use, absolutely blameless and beyond reproach. Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord of our life. So that is the idea that's behind this. Um, if you look in your notes, I have uh, for you there uh, Ephesians 5, verses 25 uh, through 27. So I have in bold um, uh, print there the word term of purpose, which is uh, what the word that is. So when you read Psalms 5, beginning verse 25, it reads this way. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, so the word that there is a term of purpose. So why did Christ love the church? Why did Christ give himself up for the church? His purpose was that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why does he do that? That, it's a term of purpose again, he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So what Paul has mentioned here in Colossians, in verse 22, is mentioned here in these three verses in Ephesians 5, and explains to us, I guess you would say, a fuller a picture of God saving us and, and what the purpose is for that. And that is to present us collectively, in a sense, to be presented to Christ in what humanity was always intended to be. Holy, without blemish, without being defiled, having perfect fellowship with God, where there's perfect love and joy, happiness and all those things. That's, that's, the, that's God's plan for us uh, at, at collectively. Is, is He's going to do this work in us. And that's why when we read verses that uh, Christ will, will um, complete the good work he's, he has begun in us. That's where he's taking us, and that's what the goal is. So we'll, we'll deal with more of that uh, next week, uh, but hopefully this is not too disjointed for you. Uh, but as you kind of read back through the, through the verses, this will make more sense to you as we kind of think about why Paul is emphasizing these things. And the idea of meditating on the scripture, this helps in meditation. Meditation is to mull over in your mind over and over what something means. So as you have a better grasp of the definitions of the words and phrases, that kind of guides where your thinking should be and what he, what's being explained there. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness and grace. We thank you, Father, for your love. We thank you, Father, again, for the words of Paul. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible depth of the things that he said. We ask, Lord, you would help us to, to be able to comprehend as we sit back and look at these verses that you would give to us a, a, a growing and much clearer picture of all that was accomplished in our salvation. And what an incredible thing it is, Father. And so, Lord, we, we are grateful for that. We thank you, Lord, for those who presented the gospel to us. We thank you, Father, for the faith you've given to us to believe. We ask, Lord, that indeed uh, that you will continue to, to do the work in us that you began back when we first got saved. And that, Father, we would continue to pursue righteousness and holiness. We pray, Lord, you would use us in the lives of others to be able to talk to them about the marvelous, wonderful, loving truth of the Word of God. As always, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.